In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I can't get no satisfaction. So sings Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones. For an Englishman, he uses awfully poor English, doesn't he? But such is the license of poetry and song lyrics, it seems. I don't think anyone is going to confuse Jagger's prose with William Shakespeare's. In our Gospel lesson today, we hear St. Matthew's account about a miraculous feeding of a large crowd along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, an event commonly known as the Feeding of the Five Thousand. We know, however, that a much larger crowd ate than 5,000, because that just included the men. Matthew tells us in detail that it did not include the women and children who were present. As I was reading through the parallel accounts of this miracle in the four Gospels, I was struck by something I thought was remarkable. Miracles are, of course, by definition, amazing and remarkable events. Miracles are things that defy logical or scientific explanation. Certainly no one in his or her right mind is going to claim that you or I could break up five ordinary loaves of bread and two ordinary fish and provide enough for a crowd of 5,000 to eat their fill. So it wasn't so much the extraordinary nature of the miracle itself that I found remarkable, because I was expecting that. Rather, the thing that struck me most significantly upon comparing the four Gospel accounts was the high degree of consistency with which the human authors present the circumstances and the details of the miracle. Yes, we certainly expect that the Word of God, the revealed will of He who is perfect and holy, to be consistent when we properly read and understand it. After all, among the fundamental tenets of Christian doctrine is the divine inspiration and inerrancy of Holy Scripture. We also expect Matthew, Mark, and Luke to have similarities in how they present the facts of the life of Jesus. That's why we call them the sin-optic Gospels. They see things the same way. This would be especially so if one or more of these documents served as a source for the others, as many scholars have concluded. Usually, though, there's at least some good degree of variance among the accounts, even when two or all three of these synoptics record the same event. Yet here, in the feeding of the 5,000, while we do see some differences in phrasing and vocabulary, there is nowhere near as much variance as we usually find. What's more, even the fourth gospel, that of St. John, captures this event. The sole time that his gospel records the same pre-crucifixion miracle as the other evangelists. And even, even his account is very similar to theirs. Now maybe it's just me. But when I see the Holy Scriptures presenting us with something on several occasions like that, and with such remarkable similarity from one place to another, I tend to sit up straight and pay a little closer attention. It's a signal to me that perhaps the Holy Spirit is communicating something very important here. That's not to say that any of God's Word which isn't repeated quite so often or which isn't given with the same degree of consistency of language and detail from one place to another, 
should be considered any less significant, of course. It's just that here, in the feeding of the 5,000, we have a pretty good indication that what has been written has a great deal of significance. Consider, if you will, some of the facts that were told in Matthew's account, many of which are shared among the other Gospels. First, Jesus and the disciples are attempting to go off on their own, to get away from the crowds. The feeding of the 5,000 coincides with Jesus receiving news of the execution of John the Baptist. It is also about the same time that the twelve disciples have returned from their mission to drive out demons and cure diseases. It's little wonder then that both Jesus and his closest friends could use some time alone. John's death by beheading would have been gruesome and troubling news for all of them. The disciples were probably physically exhausted too from all of their preaching in the villages and towns and from meeting the demands of the many that they had encountered along their way. So Jesus withdraws by boat to a desolate place, as it is described. But his solitude is not to be. Eager, desperate people follow Jesus and his disciples out to this desolate place. They are gathered on a grassy hillside near the shore, eager to hear the words of Jesus and to have their physical ailments healed. In Matthew's account, as in the others, both Jesus and the disciples express or demonstrate concern and compassion for this large crowd. Jesus does it by preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and by healing the sick. But now the day is spent and the sun begins to set. People have come a long way from where they usually dwell just in order to be with Jesus. The disciples then demonstrate some concern for the crowd as well, although we might interpret their suggestion to Jesus as having some elements of selfishness, too. They suggest to the Lord that the people be dismissed to seek food and perhaps shelter for the coming night. Jesus will have none of that. He knows that the people have come to see and to hear him. They have journeyed a great distance on foot to have their hearts and their minds filled with the wisdom and encouragement of his words and to have their bodies made whole by the power and the healing of his touch. They aren't likely to voluntarily walk away from him, even to quiet the rumble of their empty stomachs. The crowd need not go away, Jesus says. Instead, the Savior issues a gentle challenge to those who are his closest followers. You give them something to eat. It's a challenge that they aren't up to any more than you or I might be. And just like you or I do when we're faced with difficulties, physical, emotional, or spiritual, instead of turning to the Lord and trusting that he will meet all of our needs, the disciples make excuses. It's a long way into town to get food. We don't have enough money. The food we've got here is barely enough for us. Such statements are true, of course. It was a long way to the towns and villages. They almost certainly did not have enough money to buy food for 5,000 people or more, unless Judas had something up his sleeve beside his money-grubbing hands. And the five loaves and the two fish wouldn't have made much of a dinner even for just 13 grown men. They, no doubt, had worked up quite an appetite themselves in the course of the day's travels 
and activities. It's here that Jesus does what Jesus alone always does. He takes charge of a bad situation, and he makes everything not only good, but beyond good. When the disciples say, we have only five loaves here and two fish, Jesus replies, bring them here to me. It is as if he is telling them, you might not think of these small, seemingly ordinary gifts of God. You might think of them as inadequate for the task, but bring them here to me, for I am going to do something quite remarkable with the ordinary. Jesus took the loaves and the fish, and he looked up to heaven and spoke to his heavenly Father over them. And suddenly, in the very speaking of his words, where there had been inadequacy, there was now fullness. Where there had been insufficiency, there was abundance. So much abundance that after 5,000 men had eaten their fill, after all of the women and all of the children had taken everything that they needed and wanted, there remained plenty. Indeed, there remained far more at the end than what they had ever begun with. Now we'll leave it to the numerologist to determine whether or not the 12 baskets of leftover bread and fish have any symbolism to them, such as representing the 12 tribes of Israel. The explanation may be far less complex than that, and the remainder of the Bible is silent on the matter. Perhaps each of the disciples simply gathered one basket each. The number of baskets isn't nearly as important as what had taken place there and how. Jesus had taken the ordinary, spoken his word, and the miraculous had happened. People who had been hungry had been fed, it's true. But more than that, they had been satisfied. That's a concept that's somehow quite foreign to many of us today. Fueled by the competitiveness of our society, encouraged by both the murmurs and the shouts of advertisers, dazzled by the extravagances of wealth that are alternately celebrated and condemned in the media, being satisfied isn't something that we've come to either expect or accept. Instead, we have individually and collectively developed an insatiable appetite in nearly all areas of our lives. Our employers demand greater and greater productivity to stay ahead of the competition. Our families and our jobs both want more time than we can possibly give to them. Our parents demand better grades, better performance on the field or the stage, cleaner rooms, cleaner language. We want our minds to have less stress, our bodies to have less weight, more muscle, and just the right contours. Our egos seek out clothes with the right labels, houses with the right zip codes, cars with the right hood ornament, vacations to the right destinations. We're never satisfied, and others are never satisfied with us. Is it any wonder that we're so frazzled? Is it any wonder that our face breaks out, our back goes out, and our spouses and our kids stomp out on us? We live and we give unsatisfying lives among others who live and give unsatisfying lives. We constantly are looking for something beyond what it is that we have, a little bit of edge that will get us past that gnawing feeling that what we've got isn't now quite all there is or isn't all that it should be. 
If ever there was a peep with a motto, bigger, faster, better, more, it's right here in 21st century America. It doesn't have to be that way, though. We don't have to join the band and sing along with Mick, I can't get no satisfaction. If you've tried, and you've tried, and you've tried, and you've tried, maybe it's time to stop chasing the illusion of worldly satisfaction. Take a step back. Take a deep breath. Sit down on the grassy hillside. Sit in the house of God. Kneel before the cross of Jesus. Be still. Be quiet. Listen to the words of God. You'll be reminded that you never are going to be able to fulfill all of your own wishes and desires. You will never meet all of the expectations and the demands of others. You most certainly will never satisfy the demand for perfection that the law of God demands in order to be reconciled with the perfection of His holiness. That might sound rather defeatist, or at least discouraging. And if that's all that we hear, it is. But Jesus does not leave you sitting on a figurative hillside, tired and hungry. Jesus became incarnate and came into the world for you for the same purpose he came to the people gathered that day on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus comes to provide true and complete satisfaction, both for us and for his heavenly Father. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the means which God chose to address the great gulf that had been torn open between man and God by sin. That infinite, humanly unbridgeable gap is what causes the alienation and the dissatisfaction we experience with others, with God, and sometimes even with ourselves. In sin, we are never truly satisfied with anything. Instead, we look for ways to be satisfied that can really only dull the pain, avoid the confrontation, or substitute false sources of satisfaction. The eating of the greatly multiplied loaves and fish on a Galilean hillside may have satisfied the appetite of the crowd that followed Jesus that day long ago. But it was the shedding of the blood of the one and only begotten Son of God on another hillside in Judea several months later that satisfied the wrath of God against the sin of you and all people. Not a one-day or a temporary satisfaction, but a satisfaction of the condemnation of the law for all time to come. That satisfaction is complete. That satisfaction is eternal. That satisfaction is perfect. More important, that satisfaction of God is your satisfaction too. It was done on your behalf. And if God is now satisfied with you for the sake of Jesus Christ, then you most certainly can be satisfied with Him and with all He has done and with all He provides. In Christ, all that you need has already been accomplished and already given. And now, when we gather together as God's chosen and favored ones, it is not simply to be reminded of that accomplishment. Rather, in coming together here in this place, we hear the declaration of His forgiveness. We are immersed in the same Word which accompanied the water of our baptisms. We are fed at the altar with food more divine and more powerful than miraculous fish and loaves. 
in all of these things, we have that accomplishment, that satisfaction applied and distributed to us as real and as fresh as the very first time, every time. The miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is well known. It was recorded in all four of the Gospels. It demonstrated the divine power and the compassion of Jesus in a very real way. It provided for the physical well-being of those who followed Him. Yet as miraculous and wonderful as it was, those who ate the loaves and the fish that day, they were satisfied but did not gain forgiveness, salvation, or eternal life through Jesus' action that day. We look instead to the lasting satisfaction. A satisfaction that meets the needs of both God and man in the miracle of the death of the One on the cross. It is there where the divine power and the compassion of Jesus Christ come into sharpest focus and have the greatest implication for your lives. It is there where the living bread of heaven was broken for you and bled for you that you will find all that you need for your complete and eternal satisfaction and the salvation of your body, mind, and spirit. Amen, amen, it shall be so. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.